So this morning, uh, we're going to go through one of the Psalms. Um, I'm sure if you're a believer, Psalms are, they're great. I mean, you know, there's no other way to put them, right? Um, William Plummer put it this way, the Psalms are wonderful. They have been read, repeated, chanted, sung, studied, wept over, rejoiced in, expounded, loved, and praised by God's people for thousands of years. Amen. They brought strength and comfort to believers in times of joy as well as times of trouble. There's many a story out there where a believer, especially a persecuted believer, either reciting or singing hymns as they're on their way to the stake. One of those, John Rogers, he was reported to be the first martyr of, of Mary, known as Bloody Mary, if you know anything about church history and the persecution she brought. He was re repeated to, um, was said to have repeated Psalm 51 as he was led through his own parish in front of family, parishioners, and just a couple lines from Psalm 51, and this is a man headed to his death. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me of my sin. This is a man who preached the word, stayed true to the word, even to the point of death. And yet, as he's going to the stake, his focus is on the Lord and making sure he's right before the Lord. There's 150 Psalms. 117, two verses. Psalm 119, 176 verses. So I, I avoided that one. <laughs> Otherwise, we'd be here for weeks, I think. Um, several different genres, if you will. Um, there's hymns. These are recognized for their exuberant praise. Um, Psalms 8, 19, 103, 104, those are examples of hymns within the Psalter. Laments. These are composed, as you can imagine, when all is not well expressing such great sorrows or loss, sadness, loneliness, grief, fear, anger. With a few exceptions, though, they turn to the Lord with confidence in the end. Psalm 3 is a good example of that. There are psalms of thanksgiving, similar to hymns, in that they focus on the praise of God. The only difference is while hymns focus on what God has done in the past, in creation or redemptive history, thanksgiving hymns, give focus on what God has done in the recent personal history of the psalmist. Psalm 18 is a good example of that, and many Bibles will have a heading, Psalm 18, to the choir master, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who addresses the words of this song to the Lord on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of his enemies and from the hand of Saul. Psalms of confidence or trust, these are typically some sort of trouble in view in these psalms. Some, the anguish may be not as intense as a lament, but the psalm is not completely out of trouble. The dominant mood of these psalms is confidence in the Lord and confidence that the Lord will deliver the psalmist. 16, 23, 27, these are examples. Kingship psalms, since God, the king of the universe, is the subject of many psalms, and since David, the human king, is subject of many other psalms, kingship is an important concept. Few psalms, however, focus so intensely on divine kingship, such as Psalm 47, or human kingship, Psalm 45, that they stand out separately. And then wisdom songs. There's a certain direction that these psalms share with other wisdom books, pronouncements and blessings, 
numerical sayings, better than sayings, admonitions. The wisdom songs also make use of themes found in, in, in other wisdom literature, the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked, the contrast between the wise and the foolish, practical advice, retribution, and fear of the Lord. Psalms 1, 19, 112 examples of those as well. The authorship of the Psalms, David wrote the majority of those, approximately 70, 73 of them that they're sure of. The family of Asaph wrote 12 Psalms, the sons of Korah 11. Herman the Ezraite co-authored Psalm 88 with the sons of Korah. Solomon's wrote in two songs, Moses, Psalm 90. Ethan the Ezraite wrote Psalm 89. So in all these, of course, by the, by the Spirit, right? And the Spirit's actually, these men pin these, but uh, with the um, work of the Holy Spirit working through them. And it's interesting that Psalms were written nearly over a thousand year period, ranging from the lifetime of Moses to the lifetime of Ezra in the fourth century. Most of these Psalms, of course, composed during the lifetime of David and Solomon. Some of the testimonies are things that are said about the songs over, over men throughout history. Augustine, what is there that may not be learned in the Psalms? Luther, the Psalter is a little Bible and a summary of the Old Testament. One verse of the Psalm is sufficient for the mediation of the day, sorry, meditation of the day, and he who at the end of the day finds himself wholly possessed of his sense and spirit may consider his time well spent. Clark, I know nothing like the book of Psalms. It contains all the lengths, breadths, depths, heights, patriarchal, mosaic, and Christian dispensations. It is the most useful book in the Bible and in every way worthy of the wisdom of God. Spurgeon, no man needs better company than the Psalms. Therein he may read and commune with friends, human and divine, friends who know the heart of man, excuse me, heart of man towards God and the heart of God towards man. Friends who perfectly sympathize with us in our sorrows, friends who never betray or forsake. And Calvin, if you ever get a chance to read just his preface to his, 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 um, his um, take on the, on the Psalms, it's, it's worth the read. He says, the anatomy of all parts of the soul. That's what he calls them. For there is not an emotion which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror, or rather the Holy Spirit has here drawn to the life all the griefs, sorrows, fears, doubts, hopes, cares, perplexities, in short, all the distracting emotions in which the minds of men are wont to be agitated. So today we're going to look at Psalm 27. It's one of the um, Psalms of confidence or trust. And let's pray, and we'll start making our way through that. Father, thank you for this day, Lord, that uh, we can gather and worship you in song and praise. And just guide us as we work through your psalm here, that uh, help us to understand the psalmist's intent and how these things still apply today as we work through these. So, Father, again, thank you for this day. In Jesus' name, amen. So Psalm 27, I'm going to read through it first, and then we're going to kind of break it down into five separate uh, headings. Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? 
The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat of my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he has hid me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices and with shouts of joy, I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, or false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the Lord and the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage and wait for the Lord. So the first thing we'll look at is the first verse, confidence in the Lord. Excuse me while I get a drink. Verse 1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? First thing here we see, the Lord is my light. And you see this theme again and again within Scripture, don't we not? Isaiah 60, 12, for your son shall go down. So your son, excuse me, your son shall no more go down nor your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord is your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. Micah 7, 8, rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light. And Job also speaks of heaven as the dwelling of light in 38, 19. I often think of, when I read this, Moses, right? When he wants to see the glory of the Lord, the Lord tells him, now, you need to back into this cleft of the rock. Obviously, nobody can see the Lord and live. And just that glimpse that Moses got when he came down the mountain, he just shone that he had to wear a veil because he'd seen the, the greatness or the light of the Lord. In the New Testament, John 3, 19 and 21, for this is the judgment that light has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does... Wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. First John 1 John 1.5, this is the message we've heard from him to proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And this is probably what David is, is, is conveying here thinking about his enemies and seeking deliverance from them. As one commentator puts it, the psalmist is referring that even in the darkness, terrible threat of war, 
He has no fear, for God is the light that can dispel such fearful darkness. You also see here salvation. The Lord is my light and my salvation. It's another theme, obviously, we see in the Bible. Here the psalmist is thinking about his deliverance from his immediate enemies. The Hebrew word for salvation means deliverance. You see this in Psalm 28.8. The Lord is my strength of the people, a fortress of salvation for his anointed one. Psalm 118.14. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Exodus 15.2. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. Now David here is probably thinking about the deliverance from his enemies. Again, the Hebrew word there for salvation is deliverance. Now, for David, he's looking to be delivered from his enemies, and we know he had plenty. As we move to the, the New Testament and our Lord and Savior being our salvation, Ephesians 1, 11 to 13, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that it is we... So it is we who were in the first hope in Christ might be to the praise and glory. In him also you have heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. And believe in him were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. In the first verse also you see, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? David was looking for refuge, as he had in times in past. He will not fear as long as he knows God is his stronghold. He will not fear his enemies as long as he knows God is his strength and his fortress. And we see this also in Psalm 23, 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and staff comfort me. Proverbs 18:10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. James Montgomery Boyce, in his uh, commentary, puts it this way. We have to say that although the setting, these three images, light, salvation, and stronghold, for God all probably have to do with military deliverance and protection. They also rightly even have greater meanings to us. Light speaks of spiritual understanding. Salvation points to the greatness of all deliveries, namely deliverance from the sin of death by Jesus Christ. Stronghold refers to the spiritual refuge from the pains and buffetings of life, which God himself is for his people. For us, this is a well-rounded statement of God manifold spiritual blessings and, is generally, and, it, and it has generally been so understood. John Stott puts it even more succinctly. The Lord is my light to guide me, my salvation to deliver me, and the stronghold in my life whom I take refuge. So we move to the second section here, verses 2 and 3. And this is confidence in spite of our enemies. Verse 2 and 3. When evildoers assail me, they eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. So it's said that David may have written this psalm at a time when he was on the run from, from Saul. We know what Saul was trying to do to him. Could have been maybe even when he was, he was running from his own son Absalom at that time. 
evildoers and adversaries. David had plenty of those, right? From the Philistines, King Saul, the Malachites, Moabites, Syrians, his own family, all trying to take David's life. Yet, he says, my heart will not fear. Despite all David has faced, he will not fear. I suspect from a long, young age, his faith and his trust in God helped him when he was a shepherd, right? And we, we all know that he defended his flock from both lions and bears. That, that takes some doing to stand, you know, at a young age, being that confident, you know, as he says, yet I will be confident. And confident there, same word as trust, right? The war rise against me, yet I will be confident. Again, in 1 Samuel 17, 36 to 37, your servant has killed both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them since he has defiled the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who saved me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, he will save me from the hand of the Philistine. So Saul said to David, go and may the Lord be with you. David was confident. You know, here's, here's this giant, Goliath, standing before the whole Israeli army saying, send out your best. And no one was going forward. Yet there was David, confident, his trust in the Lord. You know, and he had that trust from, you know, a young age, obviously, uh, defending his flocks. The Hebrew word for confident here, and, and I may butcher this, is batah which means trust. This also appears 120 times in 117 different verses. Psalm 26.1, Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in integrity and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Psalm 31.14, But I trust in you, O Lord, I say, you are my God. In Proverbs 3.5, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. From these two verses, David's confidence to stand before his enemies without fear, trusting his Lord. And our Lord can deliver us today. We have three great enemies today, do we not? The devil who prowls around, 1 Peter 5, 8. The world, they hated me, they will hate you, John 15, 18 or 19. And of course, our own flesh. You see this, especially in Romans 7 and 8, Romans 7, 18. Those are the enemies we faced. So do we stand in confidence like David did? Is it Matthew 10, 28? For we are not to fear the one who can destroy the body, but we should fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. A recent study, uh, men's study, we had in the book of Revelation, and, and a couple things I took away from that. The whole, the whole book is based on hope, hope for believers. And in verses 14, 12, and 13, here is the call for endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard the voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that, he may rest, that we may rest from their labors, from their for their deeds fall them. And one of the things Godfrey, who was, was teaching the lessons, I'm probably kind of paraphrasing this, but he said that even if the devil puts us to death, all he's doing is ushering us into the presence of the Lord. Amen. As we move to the next verses here, chapter, or verse 4 through 6, is confidence in the sanctuary. 
One thing I have asked of the Lord that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the rock of his tent, under the cover of his tent, excuse me. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Verses four through six, and when I read this, and again, Psalm 23 came to mind, I should dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Though you could say Psalm 23 is speaking of heaven, Psalm 27, it seems David here is longing to be in the house of the Lord, the tabernacle, to gaze upon the Lord's beauty and seek the Lord specifically. Boyce puts it this way, David seems to be ransacking the Hebrew language for nouns to describe it. The house of the Lord, his temple, his tent or tabernacle. Psalm 28.6, O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. At this point, God's house was a tent erected by David for the ark when he brought it back from Kiriath-Jerim to Mount Zion, 2 Samuel 6.17. But that longing is there to be in the presence of the Lord in his temple. You see this throughout the Psalms, 84. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of your Lord, for, for the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. In Psalm 84.10, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. David here is longing for the security of the Lord's presence. He can find peace here, quiet, peaceful rest from his troubles. His troubles will not find him, for he will be hidden secret. Their troubles will not reach him, for he should be set on high. David finds joy bringing sacrifice and praise to the Lord, secure in his dwelling in his presence. David is known for his praise, his celebrations before the Lord. He's known to be a skilled musician, 1 Samuel 16. David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals, 2 Sam 6. David's even danced before the Lord. You see this in 2 Samuel 6. They brought in the ark of the Lord, set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it, and David offered burnt offerings, peace offerings before the Lord. The Israelites, they wandered the desert. God wanted to inhabit a place with them, so they erected the tabernacle, Exodus 25.8. Later, when the Israelites entered the promised land, the, um, excuse me, promised land, God affixed his name to a place, sanctifying Solomon's temple as Lord's holy dwelling place, in second, first Kings, sorry, 8, 10, and 11. In the New Testament, God's presence was manifest in a new way, in the person of Jesus Christ who is the living, incarnate, eternal word of God, John 1, 1 to 4, and 14 through 18. Jesus took on human flesh and made his home among us. Through his life and ministry, Jesus Christ lived among us, among his people. His name, after all, was Emmanuel, meaning God with us. Jesus Christ became the new earthly temple of God, John 2, 21. For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in human body, says Colossians 2.9. The complete image of the invisible God is revealed in Jesus, our Savior. Yet Christ is only the initial installment of God's indwelling place. 
Today, the New Testament church, the body of believers who gather in the name of Jesus, constitutes the temple of God's Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 3.16. Jesus said, anyone who, lives, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them, John 14.23. Paul, Paul also taught the Ephesians that as a member of God's household, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. And in him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become the dwelling in which God lives by his spirit, Ephesians 2, 20 to 22. This for me is why I enjoy Sunday morning to gather with other believers, indwelt spirit-filled believers to worship the Lord, to hear his word, there's nothing like it. As we move to the next section, confidence in prayer. And this is um, verses 7 through 12. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. Here in verses 7 to 12, you see a shift kind of from the confidence that David was expressing to one of earnest desire and hearty prayer. You can see David being confident in his plea to the Lord as he is crying aloud. Other versions, verse 7 translated, say, Hear my voice when I call. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice. Be gracious to me and answer me. The word gracious here is from the Hebrew word hanan, to show favor, to be pitied, to be merciful. Again, other translations may insert the word mercy here. Psalms 30.10, hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. And, and I think here, for me, when I read this, you know, David, obviously, his trust was in the Lord. He goes boldly before the Lord. He's not afraid to speak or pray to the Lord. Pray to the Lord. In Hebrews 14, 16 to 18 came to mind. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace and help of time of need. In Romans 8, 26, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. This week, seeing a lot of the prayer requests on band and, and messages going back and forth, I'm sure there's many of us praying for things this week. 
and, and it, it recalled a couple situations in my life where I reached out and, you know, David cried aloud. He cried out to the Lord. Now, we may not all do that at times, but it's that knowing that we can go to him and even if we don't know the right things to say or pray for, our Lord knows. He knows our hearts. He knows what's going on. He's sovereign over everything. And a couple of those times, I, for me, and as most of you know, because Phil brings it up, I have five kidneys. <laughs> so it, it was during that first kidney transplant in 1986 where I had all kinds of issues. There was a problem. I had it. So it was during those 50-plus days at the hospital that at one point, family, they'd bring me the Modesto B newspaper, and I'd read through the stuff there just because I was bored, didn't feel good. And there was a little section they used to do on a student or a young person in the, in the community, and this young person had their verse was Proverbs 3, 5, and um, 6. Trust the Lord in all, your, in all you do. And I'm butchering it. But I cut that out and I stuck it on my side of my bed and I had plenty of time to contemplate, right? I've had people witness to me over the years. I had, you know, I was there 50 plus days. I had, you know, cleaning staff talking to me, witnessing to me. And at some point, I just, you know, not so much cried out verbally, but just said, Lord, okay, what do I do? You know, at that point, I, I put my trust in him because I had, you know, nothing else to, to do at that point. And actually, at that point, then things started to get better. And it was with, I think, within a week or so, I was finally out of the hospital and back home on my way to recovery. And it was just, you know, I didn't know, you know, I'd been to churches, I'd seen the sinner's prayer, right? And I didn't really get that and didn't understand it. It was like, what do I do? What do I say? And it was just a matter of, knowing, okay, Lord, I'm now following you, as simple as that, repenting of my sins, putting my trust in him. I think I asked someone, hey, somebody get me a Bible, right? Start working through the word there. And then things started to improve. And I think within a week, then I was back home. And it was uh, not just medically things got better, but my emotions, emotionally, I got better. Because that was rough, I can tell you. And any of you, I know many of you have been through medical things it's not fun when you're down on your back or not feeling well. And it's, it's, for me and all the other things I've been through, it's putting that trust in him, knowing at this point, no matter what else happens, I know where I'm going to be for eternity, and I know where my trust is. Another example, Cinco de Mayo 2010. <laughs> Jen goes in for a simple heart calf. Well, we can't do anything simple, right? <laughs> Next thing you know, we're, we're getting called back because they're rushing her to emergency hope and heart surgery. Her artery was torn, and she had coded two or three times at that point, and at that point, they're rushing her to the ER. And I remember walking down a hallway next to her and all the medical staff as they're headed towards the ER, and Jenny's like, pray, and I'm like, what am I going to pray for? You know, it was just... And it was like, as I'm praying, it's just tears flowing. You know, for me, if it's something to me, it's like, okay, I'll give it to the Lord. It's fine. If it's your loved one, and we all know this, 
it's tough. And I, I think I'd prayer is like, Lord, you know, have your hand upon her, have it upon the medical staff. And it's like, you know, there's no said perfect prayer in these situations. You just reach out to the Lord. And that, you know, David in the Psalms, you see that all the time. You're crying out, as simple as just crying out for mercy. So, again, in this, you see this throughout the Psalms. And David here, you know, he boldly going before the Lord in those situations. Verses 8 and 9, you have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your Lord, excuse me. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me off not, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. David here again is responding to the call of the Lord to seek his face. David replies, I will seek your face. Psalm 24, 6, such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of, of God of Jacob. Psalm 105, 4, seek the Lord and his strength, seek his presence continually. Alexander McLaren sums it up this way, for the seeking to which God mercifully invites us, it is but a turning of the direction of your desires to him, the recognition of the fact that his face is more than all else to men, the recognition that whilst there are many that say, who will show us any good, and put the question impatiently, despairingly, vainly, that they turn the seeking into prayer and ask, Lord, lift thou the light of thy countenance upon us, whenever we'll ask in vain. And you see here, David's, in these verses, David's reasoning is he's seeking things that, uh, in requests and petitions, to not have your face hidden from him. Excuse me. To not have your face hidden from me. To, you know, David's saying, do not hide your face from me. Please hear my prayer. To not turn your servant away in anger. As Plummer puts it, my sins may be many. God may be in a righteous indignation, cast me off. But he is merciful, and in him I do trust. Do not cast me off. Under the Lord's protection, I am safe. Do not forsake me not. The Hebrew word here, azab, if I'm saying that right, to leave, to lose, forsake. David realizes without the Lord's presence, he is helpless to stand against the content, excuse me, the constant onslaught of his enemies, to defeat lions, bears, to slay Goliath in his military conquests. The Lord is David's savior. Come to verse 10, and in verse 10, even the commentaries scratch, commentators scratch their head a little bit. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. And I, and I search the scriptures quite a bit on this, and, and commentators are kind of trying to, you know, often people are drawn to this. You come to this verse, because in the Bible, you see no indication of David being forsaken by his parents. Last we read of him in 1 Samuel 22, 3 and 4, David asked the king of Moab to watch over them. Matthew Henry and James Boyce have similar takes on this. Most of us, most of us have been raised by loving, caring parents. Boyce says a rightly functioning parent is ideally suited to everything David notes in this section that he is seeking from God. We seek acceptance. 
most of us have faced some type of rejection, rejection, you know, in our lives at some point, whether family, friends, acquaintances, people we're counting on, countless situations where we may feel rejected. But God does not refuse us. Spurgeon said, these dear relations will be the last to desert me. But if the milk of human kindness should dry up even from their breasts, there is a father who never forgets. We seek to be heard. God's never too busy to hear your prayers. Never. We seek guidance. In God, we have the one we can turn to, to guidance. We see this in verse 11. We'll get there. We seek protection. The psalm opens with David needing protection in the Lord's presence. Matthew Henry, when I am helpless, even as a poor orphan, or, excuse me, poor orphan that was left fatherless and motherless, I know the Lord will take me up as a poor wandering sheep is taken up and saved from perishing. As David continues in this prayer, verses 11 and 12, teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. Again, you see this also in Psalm 25:4. Make me know, make, excuse me, make to me known your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Psalm 5:8. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before us. David's asking the Lord to help keep him on a level path. Why? because of his enemies. Our enemies look for us to stumble. We know this as believers. We look for a crack in our armor, if you will. We start to de deviate on our Christian belief. We can easily fall into temptation leading to sin, and our enemies look for weakness. We see this all the time. Oh, you say you're a Christian? Look what you're doing. You know, you see this all the time in, in known national leaders where they fail and fall and in, in the world is quick to jump on that and say, look, there's no Christians are better than anybody else. And, and we get that somewhat because we hear that in the culture today. Oh, you're bigoted. You're, you know, you're not loving. God's loving. You, you don't know what you're talking about. And nobody wants to be told that they're unloving. But if we stand firm on the word, that's better than anything the world's got to offer. You know, take the recent baseball issue, right? <laughs> we know what month this is, Pride Month. And we see these organizations, you know, celebrating some of these things and some of these things to the point of just outright heathenism, the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, that bunch. And, and Christian ballplayers are afraid to speak out. Or if they do, they couch it some way as to not specifically offend anyone. Right? The, the word's a, a, an offense to those that are perishing. And to, you should be able to stand on that. I mean, we can, you know, David wants to stay on that level path. Crooked ways are to be avoided because they are wicked. Rough ways are to be uncomfortable. And dark ways because they are perilous. It's from McLaren. He also continues into verse 12, looking for divine protection from his enemies. It's a dreadful thing to be, even for a season, in the power of bad men, especially when their passions are excited and they're ready to deal out cruelties. The wicked do often make positions of this world very much like hell. 
And we've seen this. Business owners, their businesses shut down, people assaulted. You know, we live in a day and age where, you know, we know there's Christians persecuted and put to death throughout the world. But we've, we're seeing a time where we, we've never seen before where we're bombarded for standing on our faith. Canada, during the COVID thing, pastors were arrested. Churches were closed. We saw the same here. You know, the governor here wanted to close down churches. And we still see it today. You know, like I said, if, if you're standing on the word, we know the world hates us because it first hated him. You stand upon the word, you're going you're gonna to be persecuted in one way or in the other, where it costs you your job, it costs your friends, family. But that's David's part of his prayer there is to stay on the level path, to not deviate from where the Lord would have him. I mean, we circle back then to the last two verses, 13 and 14, back to confidence in the Lord. Psalms 13 and 14. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage and wait for the Lord. The psalm here returns to confidence in which it began. The ESV states here, I believe I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Other, other uh, versions, I am certain, I remain confident of this. Many interpreters here are thinking David's imitating that he was supported solely by faith. Otherwise, he would have perished a hundred times. He had not replied or relied on the promise of God. He had assuredly, assuredly persuaded that the Lord would safely preserve him. He would utterly perish if it wasn't for the Lord. Notice here he states that he will see the goodness in the land of the living. It is the psalmist's hope that he will outlive his troubles and not perish under them. This is true of us as well. We've all had trials. Times of constant battles with sin, our health, finances, addiction, a hundred other things that can bring us down. But we also know if our faith is strong, we can see the goodness in the Lord this side of paradise. Blessings of all shapes and sizes, recovery from sin, from illness, freedom from addiction, birth of children and grandchildren. These are blessings. Some of these things don't happen overnight. Of course, it's all in the Lord's timing, for he's the sovereign Lord, and it's, it's his determination and, and as to when these things will happen. So when we despair, how do we continue to go on? For David, verse 14, wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Psalm 20, excuse me, Psalm 31, 24, be strong and let your heart take courage, all of you who wait for the Lord. Joshua 1, 9, I have, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for your Lord, your God, is with you wherever you go. And we have to keep in mind again that the Lord is sovereign and we may not recover from our illness. We may not recover from our troubles. But we know from Romans, and we know, for, know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. So we may not understand on this side of paradise the death of a newborn baby, death of a loved one, 
some other thing that impacts us, you know, our, our sin, our finances, you know, our health, whatever it may be, we, we may not understand on this side of paradise, but it's where we put our trust that will see us through to the end. I can't help but think of the Sermon on the Mount and the, and the blessings that the Lord um, conveys in that sermon. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And that's what you saw David going through. Many enemies. He was surrounded by enemies, but he was putting his trust in the Lord. And we see, you know, as he said, David was hoping to see goodness in the land of the living. And I can tell you this week, especially the last couple of days, we've been blessed, got all seven grandkids in the same house. That's a blessing. You know, youngest one down there on the end right now. <laughs> so there's, there's, there's always blessings out there. I mean, I've had five kidney transplants. And that doesn't happen without the Lord being involved. I mean, I could stand up here for an hour and talk about situations and things that happen that put all the things in the right place at the right time. That's not coincidence. That's not just dumb luck. That's the Lord's hand in that. And that's where I put your trust. I mean, it's possible that I may not be standing here today if the Lord's so determined. But it's a blessing this side, you know, in the land of the living, that I've seen and I can talk to other people about. So as we close here, where are you as a believer? Are you confident in the Lord? Is your confidence there? You know, there, there's going to be things that happen throughout your life where you're just like, oh man, now what? And I've had those. I've had my little pity party, you know, got the phone call, hey, your kidney's failing. Seriously? So, and then, then at some point, I remember, all right, the Lord's gotten you through so much. Stop being, stop your little pity party. Reach out to the Lord. Ask him to forgive you for your little pity party. <laughs> and say, you know, let's go. What's next? You know, trust in him. Are you confident in spite of your enemies? We got them. Whether it's at work, it's family, friends, the world, the devil prowling around out there? Is your confidence in the Lord despite all those things? Are you reaching out to him? Are you confident in the sanctuary? Now, sanctuary here, I see that as with the body of believers. Are you confident in your pastor? Are you confident in your church, your fellow believers? Do you go to them in times of need? Do you reach out? Pray for each other. I love this church. They pray for each other. We've seen that. A band is a perfect example of that. Somebody's got something, they throw it up there. There's 10 replies within 10 minutes. You know, we lift each other up. Are you confident in prayer? 
Do you reach out to the Lord in times of trouble, grief? Even in times of joy, you should be reaching out to the Lord and thanking him for, for the blessings you have, for the goodness you have. Those are the things David's conveying in this psalm. You know, he's confident in the Lord. He's confident in spite of his enemies. He's confident in the sanctuary, the Lord's presence. And he's confident in prayer. He goes boldly to the Lord with his needs and his, and his, his desires. If you're not a believer, what are you putting your faith in? The world? Watch the news. The world's a mess. I can tell you that for sure. You know, are you putting it in yourself, your own flesh? You know, we, we all know how wrong that can go. Are you putting it in something else, in a bottle, somewhere else? Is that where you're getting your confidence? In the sanctuary, reach out to your friends. Reach out to the believers, spirit-filled believers as part of the sanctuary, part of your church body. That's what... That's what the body's supposed to do, is take care of each other. Be confident in prayer. Make sure you're reaching out to the Lord. And you don't have to have perfect words, especially in times of grief, times in trouble. Lord, be merciful to me. It could be as simple as that. The Lord knows what you need and what you're going through. But how do you get that confidence? How do you become a believer? Do you put your confidence and trust in the one who was born of a virgin? Led the perfect sinful life, sinless life, excuse me. Who was beaten and hung on a cross for our sins. He paid the penalty for our sins. He's put in the grave and three days later, he was raised to life. And that's the hope we have as believers. Amen. If you're not a believer, that's what gives us hope. That's when you come to a church or see believers gathered in prayer that's where their hope is. It's not in the world. It's not in some other philosophy. It's not in their selves. It's in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we have that hope of eternal life that gets us through all these hardships in times of trouble here on this side of paradise. So I hope we have this confidence to stand before our enemies, to have hope and joy Look for goodness in the land of the living, but knowing that ultimately we'll see goodness of the Lord in all eternity.